Uh, well, friends, uh, when I was in high school, I entered a competition called the Young Entrepreneur of the Year Awards uh, with a few of my friends. Uh, the competition involved forming a company and starting a business, and uh, we were judged on various criteria against other teams. The brilliant product that we came up with were some paint sticks. Uh, we, brought, we bought hundreds of empty deodorant rollers and filled them up with different colored paints, and uh, we sold them to unsuspecting parents so that their children could paint with these sticks without making a mess. Soon, sales were going through the roof. Uh, news of our fantastic product was spreading rapidly. Uh, we thought we were going to be famous. We didn't win, but boy, it was good to be part of something uh, where it was growing rapidly. Now, uh, as I reminisced about the glory days, uh, I couldn't help but think, wouldn't it be good if the kingdom of heaven could grow in this way? I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if the kingdom of heaven limited could sweep all before it so that the whole world will continue to bow the knee to Jesus one by one until the whole world is changed? But of course, this isn't our experience of the kingdom, is it? Uh, you might have spoken the gospel to a loved one for many years, but they still haven't softened their heart toward Jesus, and it's becoming increasingly awkward to keep bringing the gospel up in conversation. Uh, you might have been trying to help someone at church to, to grow in their understanding of the gospel and to grow in their faith, but they seem so stuck in their ways, and very little has changed after many years. Uh, you might have desired to make an impact in your workplace for the gospel when you first uh, started work, but uh, there is so much opposition and ridicule of Christians in the workplace that now you have just given up in even speaking about Jesus to the people around you. Uh, why is the growth of the gospel so painfully slow? Why doesn't the gospel ever seem to grow with great power and speed and influence in this world? Why don't we see this happening? And especially because Jesus has told us that he is the king through whom God's rule has now broken into this world. Can't we expect Christianity to sweep all before it? I wonder whether you've not only asked yourself these kind of questions, but felt these kind of Christians, uh, questions in your experience. Uh, well, friends, uh, last week we began to look at the parables of Jesus in, in Matthew 13, and we saw that parables are not simple and easy to understand stories that Jesus tells us uh, for the sake of comprehension, but they are riddles which demand further thought and further explanation in order for someone to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And I want to suggest that the whole of chapter 13 is really about the nature of the growth of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which you can see from the kind of imagery that Jesus uses in his parables. And so, for example, he talks about seed, which grows. 
He talks about yeast that makes the bread grow. He talks about a great catch of fish later on. It's a chapter about kingdom growth. And I want to say that if you are someone who has been hard at work participating in the work of growing the kingdom, then what Jesus has to say to us this morning, uh, I trust, will be something of great encouragement and great uh, comfort to us as we listen to him and sit at his feet. And so the first thing that we can see in today's passage about the growth of the kingdom of heaven is that it will be mixed growth. It will be mixed growth. Uh, You can see it there in the parable of the weeds that uh, Manik took us through, uh, that Jesus tells the crowds, beginning from verse 24. Uh, Now the story itself uh, is fairly easy to retell. Uh, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a farmer who uh, goes around sowing good seed in his wheat field. However, while his servants are sleeping, his enemy comes along and he sabotages the crop by sowing uh, weeds among the wheat. Uh, His servants later discover what has happened and they question uh, how this can be, given that their master has uh, just sown good seed in the field. The answer, of course, is that the master's enemy has done this through an act of sabotage. However, instead of instructing his servants to immediately pull up the weeds, the master says to wait until harvest time, at which time the weeds will be gathered together and burned in the fire, and the wheat will be gathered also, but this time to be poured into the master's barn. Uh, Now, in ancient times, it seems that such an act of sabotage was not uncommon. Um, In fact, in Roman law, there were actually penalties against sabotaging crops in this manner. Apparently, if you were a farmer and uh, you had somebody who didn't like you very much, uh, he might come into your farm in secret at night and plant what are are called darnels uh, instead of wheat. Has Has anyone ever heard of that term, darnels? Uh, It's something I've heard for the first time this week as well. Uh, Apparently, darnels are a weed that looks very similar to to a stalk of wheat, so that as it grows, it's very hard initially to distinguish between the two. But uh, instead of producing edible grain like a stalk of wheat, uh, these darnels produce a poisonous grain instead. And so the point of this parable is that these uh, noxious weeds are mixed in with the wheat. Uh, Now, I think it's uh, true to say that this parable is often understood to be about the church. Um, I wonder whether you've understood the parable in that way, uh, either this morning or in the past. Uh, You know, countless sermons and commentaries tell us that this is really about the mixed nature of the church. Uh, What Jesus is saying is that the church... Uh, will not be totally pure in this age. It will be infected by false teachers or nominal Christianity uh, who are not genuine disciples of Jesus or even the ungodly behavior of, of saints. Church will always be a tainted and mixed place. And so get used to the idea of church not being perfect is often the message that gets preached. In fact, uh, one commentary I saw this week used uh, that famous illustration about a woman 
who uh, came up to the famous Baptist minister, Charles Spurgeon, uh, and told him that she was looking for the perfect church. Uh, Spurgeon apparently replied, Madam, if you do find that perfect church, please don't go there, because then you'll ruin the whole thing. And so the point was made that Jesus in this parable is speaking about the reality of an impure church. Now, I know we're all tired this morning, um, and so just to kind of get us to think and get the, the thinking juices flowing, I wonder whether you can just have a look at uh, the, the parable of the weeds, uh, both the, the parable uh, told to the crowds as well as the explanation that comes later, and, and see whether you can work out why this cannot be talking about the church. Okay, I'll give you um, just a few moments to see whether you can work that out. Perhaps if somebody has an answer, you can um, shoot up your hand and uh, you can let the rest of us know. Why can this parable not be about the church, the mixed nature of the church, is the question. Any takers? Jono? Uh, good reason. <laughs> I agree with that. <laughs> um, but uh, I think there are clues uh, within the text itself. Yes, thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so does everyone see that? Uh, what verse is that in? Verse 38. Um, so chapter 13, verse 38. Uh, he, he says, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Um, and so um, you'll notice there that in verses 36 to 43 is where Jesus privately explains uh, this parable to his disciples. Uh, remember from last week that Jesus speaks in parables to the crowds, who have largely rejected him. Uh, and he does that in order for the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to have a hidden quality about it, uh, at least to the crowds. Whereas to the disciples who have turned to him and who humbly desire to learn from him, well, he further explains and clarifies the meaning of the parable so that they will understand even more about the kingdom of heaven and what it is like. And, and so uh, in that explanation section from verse 30, uh, six, uh, 35 onwards, 36 onwards rather, um, you'll see that Jesus gives an explanation of this parable. Uh, in verse 37, Jesus says uh, that the sower is the son of man. Uh, the son of man is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where one like a son of man is given an eternal kingdom by God. But uh, the Son of Man is also Jesus' favorite way to speak about himself as this universal and eternal king. And so here, the sower is Jesus. However, in verse 38, as, as Jono uh, rightly pointed out, uh, the field where the seed is sown is the church, uh, sorry, is not the church, but rather the world. In other words, this parable is not about the mixed nature of the church but it's about the mixed nature of the growth of the gospel in this world. And so in verse 38, Jesus goes on to explain that the good seed represents the sons of the kingdom, 
and the weeds represent the sons of the evil one who is the master's enemy. That is, as the gospel seed is sown in this world, those who belong to Jesus and those who belong to the evil one will exist side by side in this world, and as Satan does his dirty work, well, this will make life extremely difficult for the disciples. However, notice that while Jesus explains the reality of what the growth of the kingdom will be like in the present, he also directs the attention of the disciples to the end of the age, where there will be a great harvest. For that is when there will be this great separation between the weeds and the wheat. Jesus will finally send his angels to gather up the weeds who are described at the end of verse 41 as the lawbreakers, or those who have no regard for God's rule in their lives, and they will be thrown into the fire where there will be eternal suffering and torment outside of the kingdom. Whereas in verse 43, those who belong to Jesus will dwell in everlasting glory. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, says Jesus. And so what does this teach us about the nature of the growth of the kingdom? Well, it explains to us why gospel work or kingdom work is so difficult, doesn't it? What Jesus says here is that wherever there is growth and fruit being produced for the kingdom, opposition and evil will rise up in response. Sometimes kingdom work will be hampered by people who oppose and ridicule and even use violence against uh, God's people. Other times, we will pour ourselves into helping other people to understand the gospel and to grow and bear fruit in their lives, and yet have the heartache of seeing these people turn away from Jesus as Satan works in their life. I wonder whether you've ever had that heartache before. Sometimes good ministries that proclaim the gospel will be shaken to its core as Satan does his work, often tempting its leaders into moral failure that ends up sabotaging the ministry. And so, friends, we need to be realistic when it comes to the work of the kingdom. It will be hard. It will have mixed results. It will be full of disappointments. And yet we are to continue in this work as we live in the light of the end of the age. For we know that there will be a great separation in the end. We know that for those who do not belong to Jesus, they will suffer eternal torment. And so we call on people now to turn to Jesus before it is too late. But we also know that those who do belong to Jesus... And I trust that that is us, will not be lost in the end. We will not be uprooted like the other weeds, but will be gathered to dwell in eternal glory. Well, the growth of the kingdom is mixed with opposition and disappointments and difficulties in this present age as Satan does his work. However, the other side of the coin that Jesus speaks about here is that the growth of the kingdom will nevertheless be unstoppable. You can see it there in another parable, in verses 31 to 32, where Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven to a grain of mustard seed. 
Uh, now, the point here is not that the mustard seed is the smallest seed known to man. Uh, has ever, anyone ever seen a mustard seed um, here? Yep, uh, a few of us. Um, I, I, I really wanted to buy a packet of mustard seeds uh, before coming to church this morning, but it was daylight savings and I couldn't get up in time. But um, if you have a look at a mustard seed, it's not actually that small a seed. Uh, it's quite big as, as seeds go. And yet uh, it was the smallest seed that was commonly sown in Palestinian soil. Uh, during the, 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 the day of Jesus. And the thing that Jesus draws attention to is that even though it is a very small thing, it grows bigger in the end than the other shrubs in the garden and the birds come and make their nests in it. Now, uh, if you know your Old Testament, you might know that the image of this great tree is found where? I'm sure... It's in a few places, but uh, one place in particular I'm thinking of. Just name the book. Uh, Isaiah? That's not the one I'm thinking of. It's a book that starts with D. Uh, it's in Daniel, uh, chapter 4, <laughs> where uh, it symbolizes uh, where, where this tree uh, in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream symbolizes God's eternal kingdom, which eventually overtakes all the kingdoms of, of this world, such that the birds who represent the nations come and make their home in it. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of heaven, which has such humble beginnings, will eventually be seen to be the greatest of all kingdoms in this world. And, and friends, this is a story of Christianity, isn't it? I mean, it was true of Jesus himself. You know that Jesus was born to a humble peasant girl in the backwater of the Roman Empire. He was laid in a manger. He was a refugee trying to escape the clutches of an evil king. He lived insignificantly in Nazareth with nowhere to lay his head and no place to call home. He was hounded by the religious authorities and eventually murdered on a cross and laid in a borrowed tomb. And yet, this is the one who rose gloriously to life, such that billions throughout history have called him their Lord. It was true of the disciples themselves. Some of them were humble fishermen. Most of them were ignorant and unlearned by the standards of the intelligentsia of the age. And yet from these 12, God has changed the course of civilizations and turned the whole world upside down as billions subscribe to their witness that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of this world. Now, the same can be said of the reformers of the 16th century and the people like Luther and Calvin. The same can be said of the great evangelical awakening of the 18th century and the people like Whitfield and, and Wesley. They all had humble beginnings. Just a few hearts that God had burdened with the good news of Jesus for the lost. And yet there is such power in this seed that it is unstoppable in its growth so that it will continue to outlast and outmaneuver and, out, uh, and overtake every other kingdom in this world, no matter how powerful no matter how impressive, no matter how influential 
these other kingdoms might be. I mean, have you ever met anyone recently from the Assyrian Empire before? Uh, or the Babylonian Empire? Or the Roman Empire? Or any other empire since that time? These were the greatest kingdoms of their time. Ah, but you will still meet people who belong to the kingdom of heaven in every corner of the globe to this very day. What began as a little mustard seed has grown and will continue to grow into a tree with branches that reach into all four corners of the earth such that the birds will find their home in it. And so friends, please don't believe the narrative that Christianity is as good as dead in this world. You know, more and more the media like to paint a picture or tell a narrative of the decline and eventual death of Christianity, at least in the Western world. Uh, You see it in the Australian newspapers from time to time. Uh, You see it in England frequently. um, And even uh, a recent governmental study made the bold prediction that Christianity if it follows current trends in England, will be extinct by the year 2067. You see it in articles coming out of the US again and again as people seem to be concerned about declining church numbers. Now it is true that we don't see the growth of the kingdom in our part of the world at the rate that we would like to see it, isn't it? If we're honest. But please don't conclude that the kingdom is not growing. What Jesus is saying is that the nature of the kingdom is that it will grow. It will not stop. What Jesus is saying, oh, sorry, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 that all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. It might be slower in the West for a time, but it's certainly speeding up in other parts of the world, like in Africa and in the global south. And so, brothers and sisters, I hope you are encouraged and comforted by this. Kingdom work is difficult work because so often we see mixed results with our, our, our eyes. But what Jesus says here is that his kingdom is unstoppable. What started out as a mustard seed will in the end be seen to be the largest of all trees that spans the globe with people of every nation, tribe, language and tongue finding refuge in its branches. But friends, how will this kind of kingdom growth come about? How will this kind of kingdom growth come about? Well, it will come about as the gospel pervades deeply into the lives of Jesus' disciples and as they penetrate into the world to make disciples of others. And you can see this in the parable of the leaven that Jesus tells in verse 33. Have a look with me at verse 33. It says, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Uh, Now the image here is of a woman adding yeast into the dough so that as she kneads it, the yeast kind of works its way through the whole batch. In fact, I'm told that in Jesus' time, uh, it wasn't strictly the 
the, the kind of yeast that we might use in, in our baking. Do we have any bakers amongst us today? Uh, at least one. Um, the leaven was actually another bit of dough that had previously been set aside to ferment. And uh, they used this, what they call sourdough. I'm guessing that's where we get sourdough from. I'm learning a lot this week. Um, <laughs> to, to make uh, bread rise. But the idea is the same. You work this sourdough into the main dough until it spreads through the whole thing, you see. Now, this image can be a little bit confusing, can't it? Because the image of leaven is often used by Jesus to symbolize the, the penetration of evil. Uh, later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Yet here, the image is used in a much more positive way to describe, I think, two things. Uh, firstly, it's speaking about the rule of Jesus pervading every area of life in the disciples so that they are not simply outwardly religious but inwardly hardened in heart and unchanged like the religious Pharisees who Jesus described earlier in the gospel as hypocrites. But they are inwardly changed in their heart as the rule of Jesus takes root deeply into their lives so that their lives look different to the rest of the world. They become salt and light in this world. Secondly, it's speaking about his disciples penetrating deeply into every part of the world and every level of society in this world as they take the good news of Jesus' rule to make disciples of all nations, which we see in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And so, friends, although I think there is great encouragement in these parables as we are reminded of God's unstoppable kingdom growth, well, there is also a serious challenge from Jesus here to us, isn't there, as well? I sometimes wonder whether in our context the slow growth of the kingdom is because, if we are honest, many of us live lives that may not be too different to the rest of the world. Um, you make that evaluation for yourself, but is that true? We simply will not be able to make disciples if our non-Christian friends see nothing different about us because we have not allowed the rule of Jesus to affect us deeply and to penetrate our hearts so that our priorities and our values and our lifestyles are different to the rest of the world. Conversion will simply not make sense to the non-Christian if we are living exactly the same as them. And they can see that the things we value are exactly the same as the things they value. For what are we then calling them to convert to exactly? Further, there is the added challenge of being people who are permeating society itself so that we are speaking of the kingdom to people around us who are not Christians. Uh, one commentator writes, It is a great tragedy when Christians take themselves out of the world into a separatist, little Christian, weed-free ghetto with no time to meet with those who are not yet Christians. So busy doing church things that they cannot spread the contagion of the gospel. Is that not why so many people in our society have never actually heard the Christian message? 
Uh, I can learn a lot from my wife uh, generally, but um, in particular in the way that she has consciously befriended and been meeting with two other non-Christian mothers from school so that she can get to know them and engage with them. Uh, they've come to share a friendship over some months. But the deeper concern is to keep speaking of the kingdom and matters of eternal significance with them, are praying for them that they might come to know eternal life in Jesus. But what about me and you? Are we seriously allowing the rule of Jesus to take deep root in our hearts such that we are serious about making disciples and participating in kingdom growth? Uh, yes, it's hard. <laughs> Jesus tells us it's hard, uh, often discouraging. And yet will we believe the things that he says so that we are participating with him in the growth of his kingdom? Uh, well, friends, uh, let me finish up. Uh, in the house that we live in at the moment, uh, we have a doorpost where we measure the growth of our children from year to year. And so uh, if you have a look at the doorpost, you can see how tall Levi and Miriam and Naomi were in each of the last five years that we have lived in this house. Uh, of course, there's not much likelihood that they will grow to be really tall, given that they have my genes. But uh, each year they have continued to grow, and it's a very tangible way of measuring growth, isn't it? However, you cannot measure the growth of the kingdom of heaven in the same way. You simply cannot measure kingdom growth by the size of church attendance, for example. You cannot measure kingdom growth by the trumpet blowing of church leaders and leaders who continue to tell you that it's always amazing. You cannot measure kingdom growth with the world's measure. Often growth seems painfully slow. I mean, look at the disciples themselves in this passage. They were in a position where they had Jesus, the King, with them in the flesh. And yet they were seeing people reject the kingdom again and again and again. And yet I want you to see that there is great hope in this passage, friends. And you can see it in particular in what Matthew says in verses 34 to 35. Uh, Matthew is keen here to show that Jesus speaking in parables is a fulfillment of Psalm 78, which he quotes briefly in verse 35. Uh, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Uh, this is the, the, the long psalm that uh, Sophia read for us earlier today. Now, uh, we won't have time to look at Psalm 78 in great detail this morning. But in Psalm 78, the psalmist looks back to the beginning of uh, the, the, the birth of Israel as a nation and the powerful works of God at the Exodus and the miracles that he did for them in providing food and water in the desert as they journeyed towards the promised land. And yet he also recounts that despite these mighty works of God, the early generations of Israel rebelled against him again and again and again, such that after showing kindness and mercy to them again and again and again, God finally decides to punish them, and his punishment comes 
uh, in the form of removing the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh. In other words, the symbol of God's presence, uh, which was the Ark of the Covenant, which dwelt in a tent, was tragically removed from them. However, the wonderful thing about Psalm 78 is that it ends with hope as the psalmist speaks about God providing a righteous king for them in David through whom his promises of salvation would continue. Now, why does Matthew say that Jesus fulfills this particular psalm? Well, I don't know whether you noticed, but it has remarkable similarities to what is happening in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has been doing many mighty works to show his divine identity again and again and again. And yet the people of Jesus' generation continue to reject and rebel against God's king again and again and again. And yet, just as God provided David as the answer for Israel in the Old Testament, here God provides the greatest Davidic king in Jesus who dies on the cross for sin and who rises again as the Lord who has all authority under heaven and earth. And this Lord sends his disciples out to the nations to make more disciples of people who turn to Jesus in trust and follow him and become part of his growing kingdom in this world. For that is God's plan. And so if you are a disciple of Jesus, will you be the ones and will I be the ones who will participate in the growth of this kingdom as commanded by Jesus? It is hard work. It will be mixed in its results. It will be full of opposition and disappointments and setbacks and heartbreaks. And yet this kingdom will outlast every other kingdom in this world. And so it is worth investing in. And if you are not a disciple of Jesus yet, will you turn to him now and follow him and find eternal rest and life in his kingdom before that great day of separation comes? Perhaps even this morning, his kingdom is growing. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. We thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ, that he reveals the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to those who belong to him. Father, we pray that you would help us not to be discouraged by the often slow growth of the kingdom that we observe with our own eyes. But we pray that you would continue to encourage us and comfort us as you have done this morning, knowing that your kingdom is unstoppable and will continue to grow and bear fruit all over this world. And Father, as we look forward to that last day when you will separate the weeds from the wheat, we pray that you would instill in us a love for the lost, uh, just like our Lord Jesus, that uh, people around us might be found by him and be part of your heavenly kingdom. Now, Father, we thank you for the work of the gospel in our own lives. We thank you for those who brought the gospel to our ears so that we might belong to your kingdom. And we thank you for those who have encouraged us in our lives as disciples so that we might bear fruit for the kingdom.
And we pray that this gospel seed that has been planted in us will pervade so deeply that we might be transformed into those who live differently for the sake of your kingdom. Help us to live lives that visibly show the eternal value of the gospel above all things so that people might see something of eternal worth and be attracted to Christ our Lord and Saviour. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.